Chapter 5, Top 10 Crypto Policy Trends for 2024. 5.0, Trigger Warning. Crypto is political now, always has been. So I'm starting this chapter with a trigger warning. There are controversial snippets in this section that dive into partisan politics. If you are left-leaning, you may not be happy with my conclusions. My goal is not to stay neutral, but to elucidate the state of play in DC, informed by significant investments of time, energy, and money in the swamp. There will undoubtedly be places where some of you disagree, but I've had editors of all different political persuasions help with this section to keep the analysis tight, even if it's net unfavorable to one political party. I wrote this chapter for people who want an unfiltered perspective about what it will take for crypto to win in the US. I'm also writing to widen the Overton window of political speech for crypto investors and entrepreneurs heading into a pivotal 2024 election. I continue to believe, as I wrote the past two years, that the US is crypto's most important and winnable battleground. If only enough industry leaders have the will to fight. If you disagree with me, that's fine. Just know that many crypto policy pros in DC agree with my assessments, even if they can't say so publicly for various personal or professional reasons. 5.1 politics is downstream of culture. Enacting laws in the US is difficult by design and bills have a tendency to move only when there is a broad bipartisan political will to tackle a given problem. There are two tailwinds you need to pass new laws. First, the populace in general, uh, or a vitally important group of constituents, must be adamant about the need for action on a given issue. It takes enormous energy to pass any legislation, so the issue must be big. Second, it must be politically safe for the two parties in Congress to work together on a solution, since it is next to impossible otherwise to obtain a supermajority of support in the Senate. We don't see much legislation on issues where there is a high degree of emotional polarization among voters, gun control, immigration, abortion, et cetera, precisely because any given position is unlikely to be politically safe for both sides. One way to help reduce the chances of emotional entanglement is to remove the demagoguery, which is why you will hear policy folks in DC frequently refer to crypto as either nonpartisan or prepartisan. It's a strategic decision to use neutral and euphemistic language. At $1.6 trillion in market cap, crypto certainly registers as material, both as a risk. Consumer protection advocates want better oversight in the markets after last year's disasters. And as an opportunity, political leaders see the economic potential of this new technology and don't want that growth and job market offshored due to crippling regulatory uncertainty. For a period of 2022, there appeared to be some positive momentum and bipartisan consensus that common sense crypto legislation, particularly the DCCPA or Stabenow Boozman, would be a net positive for the US. Unfortunately, that sentiment turned on a dime after one of the DCCPA's leading proponents and DC political donors, Sam Bankman Fried, self combusted. He took down much of the industry and millions of investors with him in an egregious fraud. In the aftermath of such a huge scandal, we face four primary cultural challenges. One, bear market blues. Although we have technically been in a bull market all year, we're still in a rotten place with respect to public sentiment, especially in DC. The GOP position on crypto has remained largely unchanged, focused on free, fair, safe markets and US leadership, but Democrats have become hardliners on consumer protection issues after multiple frauds hurt millions of crypto investors in 2022. Two, national security. We're on the wrong side of the civil liberties national security divide. Our leaders have grown accustomed to the third party doctrine that allows for dragnet surveillance of all financial activity through the banking system. And they continue to lean heavily on our global sanctions regime and reserve currency status as a foreign policy cudgel. It's one thing for crypto to get beaten up over things like tax compliance, consumer protection, or even financial stability, but we do not want to be on the wrong side of the national security apparatus. Senator Warren inflicted real political damage by scapegoating us after the October 7th Hamas attacks in Israel. It was a brazen smear that deflected from her party's foreign policy failures, but it left a mark. 
Three, our size is not size. Contrary to some industry battle cries, we don't have a very large or particularly healthy army right now, more like the Continental Army at Valley Forge. A majority of crypto users may still be underwater on their investments or stuck awaiting the resolution of bankruptcy processes in which they are claimants. Others have simply moved on to emerging fields like AI. We often tout the number of US crypto investors, but many of them aren't necessarily happy to be here. It's a stretch to hope that crypto ownership will lead to single issue advocacy. Note, I wrote this section before the Blockchain Association presented polling that fully confirmed this at their annual policy summit. This BIS data is a year old, but it's probably still directionally accurate and a majority of US crypto holders are still underwater when Bitcoin trades below $40,000. Four, pitching the gerontocracy and the no-coiners. There are sizable gaps in the technical understanding of our leaders regarding crypto. Often that is due to age. The average House Democrat crypto ally is nearly 15 years younger than their antagonist colleagues, but the gap is just as frequently about perverse incentives. Congress can use emerging AI tools like ChatGPT but they often can't or won't own crypto due to potential conflicts of interest. Fewer than 2% of congressmen own crypto, a rate that's an order of magnitude lower compared to the general population. Many congressional offices and financial regulators even force their staff to liquidate crypto if they cover the industry professionally. Though they have no issue owning equities they influence through legislative action. That explains a lot. How can you appreciate crypto's potential if you've never had an aha moment with a crypto app? The US adversely selects financial regulators with a pre-existing bias against the industry, but it's not all headwinds. We have three big things going for us. One, distrust in the bureaucracy. At least one party, the GOP, believes that many of our DC institutions have been weaponized for political purposes. They are sympathetic to the crypto community's arguments to this effect, and there is bipartisan disgust at the SEC leadership in particular. Chair Gensler's habit of ignoring congressional oversight requests and brazenly overreaching on his statutory authority has rankled some pretty powerful people. GOP representatives have questioned whether Gensler had his eye on the right ball, given he met with Sam Bankman-Fried in 2022 and missed the FTX fraud while ignoring Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong's repeated entreaties to meet constructively. Gensler has admonished the industry while industry leaders, the financial press, Congress, and even fellow commissioners have called bullshit on his invitations to the Constitution and the courts. There's a civil liberties component to crypto that resonates well with some of the GOP members of Congress. Leaders like Majority Whip Tom Emmer are inclined to support crypto as an open, private alternative to dystopian central bank digital currencies, and recent court rulings that have repeatedly deemed federal financial regulators, again the SEC in particular, as arbitrary and capricious are creating cracks in the administrative state's armor. There are major battles ahead that involve self-custody, peer-to-peer transaction privacy, and due process for crypto users that circumvent the financial system and which we can use to undermine the third party doctrine. Three, the return of the bull. It is more difficult politically to crack down on crypto when individual investors and institutions, especially TradFi, are all making money. The economic potential for crypto is still massive and a booming US crypto market will lead to jobs, economic growth and digital dollar proliferation. Stable coins can keep the dollar strong and stable their supply is auditable in real time, movements are fully transparent on chain, and redemptions require KYC at exchanges that integrate with the regulated financial system. Stablecoin issuers are also massive buyers of treasuries at a time when we need more buyers. Given today's market tailwinds, time is our friend, and if we can get crypto legislation passed when we have market momentum, staunch bipartisan support, most of the GOP and a growing cohort of younger Democrats, and the conservative courts on our side, we may yet have a vibrant US crypto ecosystem. Don't get your hopes up yet though, the political chessboard is messy. 5.2, how a crypto bill becomes a law. There are multiple paths to victory, but we'll probably need to wait until 2025 or 2026 to get there. To understand why, let's go back to the basics of how bills become laws. 
One, remember Schoolhouse Rock. The two chambers of Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate, need to agree on and mutually pass a bill before it heads to the President. The President can then sign the bill into law or veto it. If a bill is vetoed, it can still be enacted into law with a congressional override via a 2-3 majority of both chambers of Congress. Bills that make it through both chambers of Congress usually get signed into law, particularly when at least one chamber is controlled by the same party as the President. Two, introduction. There's a lot that happens in the halls of Congress before a bill ever gets a vote. A bill can be introduced in either the House or the Senate by any member of Congress, whether they are in the majority or minority party. For the most part, the only bills that are taken seriously are those introduced with a bipartisan group of sponsors or, less frequently, a unanimous vote by members of the chamber's majority party. Most other bills are simply messaging bills introduced to score political points and raise awareness on issues, but with little real chance of advancing into law. Three, committee jurisdiction. Once introduced, a bill is referred to the committees related to its subject matter in the chamber where it was introduced. In crypto, the most important committees in the Senate are banking, Elizabeth Warren's turf, and agriculture, home of the Stabenow Boozman bill FTX championed, while in the House, the relevant committees are financial services, Chair Patrick McHenry, House Majority Whip Tom Emmer, Ranking Member Maxine Waters, American Hero Richie Torres, and Agriculture, GT Thompson is chair. Senate Banking and House Financial Services have oversight over most of the financial regulators and are the ones who do hearings with Treasury, Chair Janet Yellen, the Fed, Chair Jerome Powell, the FDIC Operation Choke Point Architect, Chair Marty Grunberg, and the SEC Chair Gary Gensler. Agriculture committees in both chambers oversee the CFTC, Commodities and Futures, which regulates the crypto futures markets and could oversee large chunks of the spot markets as well. Four, committee reviews. The relevant committees are responsible for reviewing and amending bills before they are brought to a full vote. Committee chairs are selected by the chamber's majority party. They wield considerable power as they decide which bills get moved to a committee vote. Most bills die in a committee without ever reaching the floor for a vote. Part of the review process will typically include hearings to gather information, debate the bill's merits, and listen to expert testimony, but often hearings are acts of partisan political theater. Amendments can be proposed and voted on during the committee review stage, and there is usually a great deal of deference to committee chairs and ranking members, senior most committee members in the minority party. Five, committee markup. Members of a committee can propose changes to draft bills, which may go through multiple revisions before a final version is approved by a majority vote in the committee. In Q3 2023, five crypto bills passed out of House Financial Services, the FIT 21 Act, market structure regulation covering exchanges like Coinbase, the Clarity for Payment Stablecoins Act determines state versus federal oversight rules for issuers like Circle. The Keep Your Coins Act affirms protections around self-custody and personal wallets. The CBDC Anti-Surveillance State Act, Whip Emmer's block on the creation of a federal CBDC, and the Uniform Treatment of Custodial Assets Act prohibits federal agencies from forcing regulated custodians to treat crypto assets as a liability and overtly adverse designation. On the Senate side, everything productive, the comprehensive Lummis-Gillibrand bill, is currently stalled by Senator Warren and Senate Banking Chair Sherrod Brown. On the other hand, there are some dangerous bills getting traction, including Warren's DeFi surveillance bill, DAML, and Senator Mark Warner and Mitt Romney's similar but bipartisan CAN-C bill. Both are messy, arbitrary, and unconstitutional proposals that would amount to de facto bans on peer-to-peer -peer crypto in the U.S. Those aren't my words. They're the far more sober coin centers. Six, floor debate and vote. If a bill passes the relevant committee, it is scheduled for debate and a vote on the floor of the chamber where it was introduced. Members of that chamber can propose further amendments during this debate. A simple majority vote is required for the bill to pass in the House, but 61 votes are required for most legislation in the Senate. We could see some clean House floor votes on crypto bills in the next few months, though it's unlikely. Seven. Conference committee, if both the House and the Senate pass different versions of the same bill, 
a conference committee is formed to reconcile the differences between the two versions and agree on a final bill. This is where we'll end up if we get any progress on any of the major bills under consideration today. There is often horse trading between leadership in different chambers and committees, and there's at least one possible likely trade to be made on stablecoin legislation given Senate Banking's advancement of the Safer Banking Act. Eight, omnibus hell. The first seven steps of this process are commonly referred to as regular order. In other words, it's how laws are supposed to be passed, but it's also possible and somewhat easier to pass narrow legislation through amendments to large omnibus packages as well. If crypto legislation gets pulled into an omnibus bill, only bad things can happen thanks to the hostilities in the Senate. The industry's recent scapegoating over the October 7 Hamas attacks is a perfect case in point. Bad headlines up the risk that a terrible, reactive, crypto-killing surveillance bill gets rammed into must-pass legislation like the annual National Defense Authorization Act. Such a scenario would map closely to how we previously lost a major battle in the 2021 infrastructure bill a loss we'll be feeling for years, nine, passage and presidential signature. Even if a clean bipartisan crypto bill passed both chambers, it is still possible we could see it vetoed, given how hostile the Biden administration and its Warren acolytes has been towards the industry. That said, anything that gets out of the Senate under banking chair Sherrod Brown is likely to be signed into law. Likewise, there is no chance the president would veto an omnibus package brought to his desk by the Democratic Senate majority. So the highest potential pieces of crypto legislation are bad amendments appended to must-pass packages. This is why vigilance is so critical over the next 13 months. 10, implementation. This is really just the beginning of the process. We haven't even touched on the implementation of new laws. That's where crypto lawyers and policy pros make their real money, contributing to the rulemaking process, ensuring that financial administrators don't overreach on their congressional authority, um, and offering legal support when necessary. Until this year, crypto had basically only experienced step 10, new rulemaking and legal challenges, and steps eight, nine, with the disastrous crypto broker reporting requirements that were inserted in the 2021 infrastructure bill. Will we finally get something through the congressional sausage-making process, steps one to seven in 2024? Slim chance, but not zero. 5.3, congressional sausage-making. If you made it through the quick civics lesson in the first two sections of this chapter, you have a sense for how difficult it will be to pass any crypto legislation. But I know, hope, you're reading this report fireside with some spiked nog so I'll skip the really in-the-weeds policy scenario planning and cut to the chase, the probabilities and most likely paths to crypto laws in 2024. Major legislation. One AFIT 21 House and Lummis Gillibrand Senate, also called market structure. 5% chance of passing. Uh, Both bills provide clarity over regulation of the crypto spot markets, custodial exchanges, and asset issuers, and would settle jurisdictional issues between the CFTC and SEC. They would prohibit the commingling of customer funds and certain conflicts of interests, address cybersecurity risks, authorize new self-regulatory organizations, and likely usher in something that resembles SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce's safe harbor. Uh, but Senate Democrats want too much deference to the SEC under any market structure legislation. They're demanding expansive language that would capture all of DeFi and their responsible parties, including developers, under rules traditionally meant for entities that hold and exchange customer assets directly. Democrats won't move legislation that carves out DeFi and GOP leaders aren't keen to reward Gary Gensler for his bad behavior. They're at an impasse, and it's too bad, too, as there are some great improvements to the status quo in these bills. You can read our analysis or Justin Slaughter's full take on X. Two, clarity for payment stablecoins, House and Lummis Gillibrand, Senate, 25% um, uh, chance of passing. The path to stablecoin legislation is more clear, though still unlikely. Um, both chambers' bills include language that would require USD stablecoin issuers to back payment stablecoins with highly liquid reserves on a 1.1 basis and comply with disclosure, redemption, and capital requirements. 
Both bills provide a path for banks and non-banks, e.g. credit unions, fintechs, to issue stablecoins subject to federal approval and oversight, and also provide a path for issuers approved by state regulators, e.g. the New York Department of Financial Services. The degree of deference to the Federal Reserve remains the major point of contention. Our full analysis is here. Democrats fear that a state-run oversight process would create a race to the bottom in regulatory standards and lead stablecoin issuers to venue shop for the states with the mildest oversight requirements. They want stricter regulations for entities providing custodial services, language promoting financial inclusion, and authorization for a CBDC study, which would likely be a non-starter for the GOP. But if there's a horse trade to be made, it's on stablecoins. That's because Senate Banking recently advanced a separate bill focused on cannabis banking reform, the SAFER Act. SAFER is likely dead on arrival in the House without concessions on stablecoin legislation in the Senate, and a barter could help crypto win twice. Stablecoin clarity would obviously help Paxos, Circle, and U.S. banks win market share back from offshore Eurodollar competitors like Tether. But the SAFER Act could also help end the FDIC's choke point 2.0 attack on crypto, more below. The latter would prohibit banks from terminating customer accounts without valid reasons beyond reputational risk. Three, Damel and Cansey, similar Senate bills, 40% chance that a watered-down version gets passed. Both DAML and CANSI would effectively end DeFi in the U.S. by imposing unworkable anti-money laundering and sanctions law requirements to open-source software contributors and non-custodial peer-to-peer networks. They would grant broad powers to the Treasury Secretary to determine who controls a protocol or who earns exemptions from AML requirements. They would criminalize activity related to publishing certain types of code or even potentially coerce speech by forcing developers with no custodial relationship with their users to write code required by financial regulators. My friends in DC tell me I'm too pessimistic on these, but I think the odds are far too high for odds of negative surveillance-oriented legislation to get crammed into a must-pass bill like the National Defense Authorization Act. It doesn't seem like a binary outcome, will this happen, so much as a matter of degree, can we effectively whittle down the negative language proposed in DAML and can see so they are workable and minimally damaging. The odds of compromise legislation go up if Chairman Patrick McHenry, who has been excellent for crypto, is willing to make concessions to his colleagues on his way out. He announced his retirement last week. Four, flashback crypto broker tax reporting. Passed in 2021, initial rulemaking proposed in August 2023. Back in 2021, the Congressional Budget Office claimed that billions of dollars in incremental tax receipts uh, could be generated if only crypto brokers submitted tax reports to the IRS like their TradFi counterparts. This pay-for was stuffed into the bipartisan infrastructure bill via a shoddily drafted broker rule that became an unexpected lightning rod for congressional leaders who had previously not thought much about the crypto industry. Anyone who has ever reported tax liabilities by manually parsing thousands of crypto exchange trades knows that this rule would have been somewhat welcome if it merely focused on exchanges like Coinbase and Kraken. Tracking cost basis and gains and losses and streamlining tax reporting is a nightmare most of us would gladly outsource to the venues within which we trade. But congressional leaders, largely at the insistence of the White House, were adamant that DeFi also needed to be captured in the broker rule language, lest the administration lose track of the emerging peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces that sit alongside their centralized competitors. Many of us argued that Congress's final legislative text was intentionally broad, designed to capture decentralized exchanges as brokers responsible for submitting tax reports to both the IRS and their users. This August, the Treasury finally confirmed our fears. The proposed rule ostensibly requires DeFi application builders to maintain centralized control of sensitive user information for tax reporting purposes, even if they do not collect such information today. It undermines privacy and imposes significant burdens on small businesses and developers for limited financial upside. 
Also, the letter of the law may even inadvertently require decentralized applications to add centralized custody in order to comply with tax withholding requirements. Patently absurd. We know that the Treasury's expansive interpretation is inconsistent with Congress's intent, as there have already been proposed legislative fixes that clarify and tighten the faulty language, e.g. the bipartisan Keep Innovation in America Act, not to mention a bipartisan colloquy at the time the infrastructure bill was passed, but it doesn't matter. Let this be a warning to all. Any law that can be abused will be. Sue five minor legislation. Now it's, uh, the most sensible and promising pieces of quick fix legislation are the Bipartisan Proof Act, which would require digital asset custodians to obtain attestation from independent auditing firms that their customer deposits are fully backed at all times, and the Bipartisan Uniform Treatment of Custodial Assets Act, which would reverse the SEC's Staff Accounting Bulletin 121 guidance that directed banks and other public companies to treat crypto assets held on behalf of customers as balance sheet liabilities. Doing so would make it impossibly expensive for banks to enter the crypto custody business due to the punitive SEC mandated capital reserve requirements. If you're petrified right now, this isn't all as bad as it sounds. And I don't mean to sound sanguine, but we are less than a year away from a fairly consequential election and retrenching and living to fight another day isn't a bad strategy. No law is better than bad law and expensive court battles are preferable to negotiated surrenders that cripple the long-term viability of crypto in the US. It may be difficult to pass new laws in 2024, but it is next to impossible to repeal bad old ones. Faced with bad options, we parry with the regulatory state, leverage the courts, and win at the ballot box next November in order to give ourselves some breathing room. Ideally, we pass crypto legislation during secret Congress and not at a time when we are a political punching bag thanks to our cascading credit failures and fraud cases. 5.4, the relentless hostility of the money regulators. There are three major points of leverage the federal government has over crypto market participants. One, they control access to banking services. Two, they make the tax reporting rules. And three, they enforce anti-money laundering laws. We've seen the power of all three leverage points so far this year, and we have no reason to believe that 2024 will be any less harsh. Crypto banking. The government lied about the failures of SVB and Signature Bank earlier this year. I mean that literally. They were caught on tape lying about bank solvency just months before the collapse. The issues were caused primarily by the whiplash effects of the Fed's unpredictable interest rate policies, where regional banks like SVB faced colossal unrealized losses on long-term bond portfolios purchased when Fed rates sat at record lows, only to be forced later to rapidly realize those losses once depositors got wise to the balance sheet gaps. The Fed lied and banks died as Balaji explained in epic detail. But it was the regulator's simultaneous pursuit of choke point 2.0 towards crypto companies that provided an accidental spark and eventual scapegoat for the worst banking crisis by deposits since 2008. I'll again point to Nick Carter's full report on choke point 2.0, though it's important to note that this operation was also well documented by white shoe law firms later on where he accounted for the government's multi-step, multi-month, multi-agency effort to debank major crypto platforms from Silvergate, SVB, Signature Bank, and First Republic Bank. Basically, sitting senators worked in cahoots with short sellers to threaten existing banks with investigations, force them to kill or significantly pare back otherwise healthy crypto customers, including highly liquid stablecoin issuers who are uh, excellent uh, bank clients and discourage them via officials at the Fed, FDIC, and OCC from taking crypto deposits on safety and soundness concerns. They blocked the new entrants outright from Fed master accounts and National Trust Bank charters, citing the risks that the government itself created. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, but the operation was merely a redux of an explicitly named program Operation Chokepoint, not 2.0, that FDIC Chair Martin Grunberg had led under the Obama administration. Back then, the administration extra-legally targeted firearms dealers, payday lenders, and other legal but politically disfavored industries. This year, they targeted crypto firms. The operation has had its desired effect. We've heard directly from big banks that they have been 
instructed from the highest levels of their institutions to avoid crypto companies, even businesses like Masari, whose business models are as benign as it gets. We're not handling customer funds, processing payments, or flipping tokens. It's not like banking had been easy to come by over the years. As outlined last chapter, Tether's rise highlights the industry's longtime solution to that intractable problem, but it was never this bad. Even Dodd-Frank co-author Barney Frank said the quiet part out loud, the destruction of Silvergate's Sen and Signature's Signet, crypto exchange settlement services was the goal. Pressure had been mounting for years, but the FTX bankruptcy finally gave regulators a perfect crisis they couldn't let go to waste. We can't say that any of this behavior is surprising. Grunberg's confirmation for a second stint at the FDIC was considered laughable in circles familiar with the original Operation Choke Point. It's not like these folks were winning ethics awards before the 2023 banking crisis. Grunberg has a history of poor management and lacks oversight of the out-of-control frat that is the FDIC. Some congressmen are asking questions, but it is too little, too late. Um, crypto tax. We covered the broker issue in the section above, but there are multiple ways that the federal government is turning the tax screws on U.S. crypto companies and their users. One, if you use DeFi, services may soon have to collect identifying information in tax reports on your use of their front-end interface, even if they never take custody of your assets. Two, if you never touch on off-ramps or even stable coins, but simply conduct ETH to other token DEX transactions from a self-hosted wallets, you're on the hook for self-reporting all of those gains and losses with no de minimis exemptions. The IRS hates you. Three, if you fail to accurately report liabilities or simply dispute cost bases that your service provider submits to the IRS, this happens all the time, you better watch out because the government is getting more aggressive with tax enforcement and asset seizures. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but the U.S. government is absolutely starving for cash, too. Uh, they went after Microsoft, the world's largest company, for $29 billion in decades-old back taxes, enough to pay for less than a week of our government's current deficit spending. They're coming for your crypto, and you should think about all available options to protect it. Uh, crypto AML, KYC compliance. Uh, uh, they got Al Capone on tax evasion, and they got CZ for breaking anti-money laundering laws. Uh, calling a national press conference to announce a $4 billion fine is one way to show that you are doing your job, I guess. But I'm unconvinced we're getting the big things right. Crypto crime accounts for basis points of global GDP, and a barely higher percentage of crypto volumes. About 1.3% of US GDP in general is laundered through traditional financial rails, and a much higher percentage is laundered using cash of a much larger denominator. Crypto crime is a red herring that allows financial authorities to believe they are doing a good job. Don't get me wrong, we should put fentanyl dealers in jail. My preferred solutions would be more medieval. And we should root out terrorism and limit nuclear proliferation, obviously but crypto is actually significantly better at minimizing illicit transactions compared to the legacy banking system because blockchains provide a permanent digital record uh, of transactions that allow for a full and permanent inspection by law enforcement personnel. That permanence ensures that crypto exchanges go above and beyond in monitoring for suspicious activities on their platforms because they know that any errors they make will be easy to trace in perpetuity but what is the reward for our superior compliance? We give them the open financial records that make us easier to hit. They use this transparency against us to cripple tech that can help broaden access to financial services globally, even when the supranational FATF itself recognizes their human rights blind spots. Not great. If we hadn't sanctioned the sixth largest economy in the world in 2022, Crypto crime would have dropped 40% instead of increasing. Statistics without context are meaningless. A global open source tech like crypto is not responsible for the geopolitical games of the state. I'm glad that we have some groups calling this out and fighting against their overreach. Also, 5.5, uh, the relentless hostility of the protectors. I don't know about you, but I have never felt more protected in my entire adult life than I do by the SEC under chair Gary Gensler. <laughs> I know Gensler will likely enjoy this section, but it's worth highlighting exactly how terrible this man is and has been
for the long-term competitiveness of the U.S. capital markets. The SEC is rotting from the head, as dead fish do, and may be sanctioned for corruption soon if you would only believe the conspiracy theorists in the federal courts. Here's what you need to know about Chair Gary Gensler. One, he's undermined the SEC's mission. I always feel compelled to remind people, including those at the SEC, that the agency's mission is to promote capital formation, protect investors, and ensure that the U.S. capital markets are fair, efficient, and competitive. Masari shares that mission, but Gary Gensler never has. Gensler's patented line, the rules are clear, has become a meme, yet he has had no explanation for his inconsistency on ETH, an asset for which the SEC approved a futures ETF this fall, while refusing to acknowledge that the asset itself was not a security. The courts provided conflicting guidance this year on how tokens fit under the Howey test, mostly slapping down the SEC's long-held assertion that these tokens are de facto securities. Gensler has even threatened to go after airdrops that decentralize crypto protocols because of their embedded incentive structures for contributors. While this is frustrating, it's not rocket science. Streamlined registration or a safe harbor would be possible if only the SEC were committed to solutions rather than enforcement. Tell us, Gary, how do on-chain disintermediated assets and their peer-to-peer -peer networks function under the SEC's view of the markets? They don't. The good news is that voters understand that the SEC is hurting investors. Two, he's an incompetent cop on the beat. Again, not my words, his oversight committee's words, but they're well-earned. Gensler has whiffed on every substantive crypto issue that's come across the SEC's desk and has pursued high-profile, low-impact cases instead. With FTX, Gensler met Sam Bankman-Fried, missed his fraud, and then sued the carcass of the company. With Grayscale, he blocked its ETF conversion application, but allowed the toxic GBTC product, an SEC reporting company with selling restrictions, to take down the entire crypto market as bad collateral. It took a federal judge, democratically appointed, to overrule his blockade as arbitrary and capricious. And don't get me started on the SEC complaints against bankrupt or defunct entities, Genesis and Gemini, Bittrex, BlockFi. In the world of financial firefighting, Gensler only shows up to pick through the rubble after the camera crews have already arrived. He's never saved a soul or even pretended to try to put out raging infernos. Millions of investors have been hurt by this SEC and its chair, and I'm tired of pretending it's an institution that still deserves respect. I hope my friends have the time and resources to take their cases to the Supreme Court and blow the SEC back to 1933. Three, he's self-aggrandizing. Pretty much from day one at the SEC, Gensler has been focused on one thing and one thing only, continuing to climb the political ranks in D.C., from the heroic planted profile pieces in the mainstream media with glamour shots, to the gimmicky office hours with Gary Gensler Productions, to the focus on celebrity enforcement actions that keep his name in the news, to his pivot to AI along with every other tech influencer, to his counter-programming of congressional hearings and other high-profile events, Gary is always looking out for number one. Four, he's a bad faith operative Gensler has lied about the registration process for crypto companies. Meanwhile, a single random digital asset securities exchange called Prometheus was approved by the SEC, just in time for its founder to proffer pro-Gensler, pro-Warren talking points and testimony before Congress. Prometheus's background is interesting. Come in and register has, I think, set a record for level of snaky duplicity out of a government regulator. He doesn't actually care whether he has the congressional authority to regulate crypto, as he knows that by the time this is adjudicated in the courts, he will be long gone. No one pointed out the inanity of current SEC overreach, quite like his fellow Democrat, Richie Torres. If I purchase a Pokemon card, is that a security transaction? Uh there are reams of ethical questions Congress has about Gensler beyond crypto, but I'll let the elected partisans pick those fights and stay in my crypto lane in the interest of time. If you want to know what else Gensler is wrong about, more generally, I give my proxy to Hester Pierce and her vast library of dissents. 
There is another major financial regulator we should talk about too, the CFTC. I've appreciated the CFTC's current leadership, but hardly think shifting crypto oversight there would be a panacea either. The CFTC has blocked innovation in prediction markets within the US in the past. Their Uki Dow enforcement action has wreaked havoc on innovation within the US Dow ecosystem. We still don't have onshore perps, and it seems unlikely we will any time in the near future, as the CME still dominates our futures markets and DeFi projects are being chased offshore or shut down via enforcement. If anything, Gensler, the former CFTC chair, is the poster child for why we should not blindly trust any government regulator to operate fairly or reasonably if given overly expansive or ambiguous statutory authority to exercise oversight on a given market. That's particularly true when we consider how broadly U.S. agencies' influence can extend beyond the U.S. Indeed, a recent IOSCO report has Gensler's fingerprints all over it. We're fighting a global policy war locally. We really need to get these important details right. Um, 5.6, the courts are our friends sometimes. Um, the regulatory situation is so stacked against us that it's tempting to fight every one of our battles in court. The trouble is that this strategy is expensive and high stakes. Few teams can afford to wage such lengthy, expensive battles. Ripple claims to have spent more than $100 million on just the first round of their case with the SEC, which after 2.5 years was resolved mostly in its favor, but still faces an SEC appeal. Grayscale successfully sued the SEC for refusing to approve its spot ETF conversion application but not before the SEC's delays crippled dozens of Grayscale counterparties, including its sister company, Genesis, and parent company, Digital Currency Group. More on that next chapter. And Grayscale's procedural victory still hasn't led to an actual ETF conversion, even though the SEC missed another deadline. Coinbase sits in limbo. The damage that its SEC Wells Notice has done is unknowable but it certainly hasn't been helpful historically to delay new listings and products while global competitors eat into your market share. And those are our early winners. For every Ripple, there is a LBRY, an actually useful project with an actually useful token which lost in court and was forced to unwind after years of litigation. Read Hester Pierce's scathing dissent, even if it won't bring an American innovator back to life. For every grayscale that's paving the way forward for institutional adoption, there is a Kraken getting slapped down and permanently suspended from offering competitive staking services to its US customers. The problem is that it almost never pays to fight the government. At best, it's trench warfare. At worst, we are weighed down by our weakest links when it comes to court precedent. Take Uki Dao, a perfect example of bad facts making bad law. The default judgment around Uki this spring created a nightmare for decentralized governance participants in the U.S. plaintiffs, attorneys, and regulators alike now have legal air cover to pursue Dow delegates, voters, and even passive token holders as general partners in unincorporated associations if they interact with any Dow. In other words, a decentralized in name only financial platform blew up an entire emerging legal construct. Similarly, I worry that the Tornado Cash case may strengthen the Patriot Act and Bank Secrecy Act rather than neuter them. We are putting enormous pressure on ourselves to win in the highest levels of court against opponents who, in certain instances, have literally unlimited resources, as with the Fed and its battle with Custodia. Uh, they're called prayers for relief for a reason. And uh, while we should take advantage of our strongest cases and uh, a Supreme Court that seems willing to brush back regulatory overreach, we don't want to be stuck throwing Hail Marys forever. No. But if Democrats hold the White House and Senate this November, we will be. Here we go. 5.7, swinging the Senate. Uh, as I explained in the section on Senator Warren in People to Watch, most of the pressure on Representative Waters to vote against the FIT-21 bill came from the White House via Warren proxies. The Lummis-Gillibrand market structure bill sits in Senate banking purgatory in the meantime, and it will never see the light of day as long as Warren and her fellow anti-crypto comrade, Chair Sherrod Brown, preside over that committee. It would be nice if Senator Warren retired.
We can all agree on that. But what we'd like and what we can get are two different things. And as such, all attention should be on displacing Warren's allies and marginalizing her impact on financial policy rather than tilting at windmills to convince the solidly blue Massachusetts to elect another senator. If you want crypto to survive in the U.S., you'd better get to know some new names. In the case of the 2024 election, the whole ballgame is about swinging the Senate to GOP control. Yes, we should also keep our GOP friends in the House supported and back the rare progressive allies in whichever chamber they emerge. But the party in control of the House in 2024 won't matter if the Democrats hold the Senate and Sherrod Brown and Elizabeth Warren retain control of Senate banking. When it comes to the upper chamber, I find myself reciting names with Arya Stark reverence before I go to bed. Sherrod Brown, John Tester, Katie Porter, Ruben Gallego, Joe Manchin, those are the most vulnerable Senate Democrats we must ensure are sent to the private sector in 2024. With Joe Manchin announcing he would not seek re-election in 2024 for what is otherwise a deep red West Virginia Senate seat, the GOP must pick up just one more seat in order to retake the majority, swinging control on key oversight committees and the final say in White House political appointees. If this happens, the chairs of Senate Banking and Senate Agriculture swing to the right and Warren gets relegated to the back bench. Still, her staff connections in a second Biden administration would remain. On that point, crypto proponents would do well to support the GOP candidate for president as well. Even if President Biden were to drop out of the race for some reason, there are no good alternatives for us on the Democrat side as any presumptive nominee would likely need to make the same assurances and commitments to Senator Warren that Biden had to in 2020. Her tentacles would choke any financial administration, but Senate control could at least keep the worst financial appointees in check. I've heard valid concerns that he who must not be named was no fan of Bitcoin, and it is true that Treasury Secretary Mnuchin attempted to ban self-hosted wallets as a parting shot towards the industry in January 2021. But that is all the more reason to support the most powerful proxies we can in the Republican field, including any financial regulator who hasn't completely burned bridges with the former president, Chris Giancarlo, Hester Pierce, Brian Brooks, as well as any high-profile potential cabinet members or vice presidential candidates, Vivek, to be explicit, there is zero chance that a Biden redux in Warren Senate will lead to anything other than the end of the U.S. crypto industry through 2028. If keeping crypto in the U.S. matters to you, there is no alternative. The Democrats, as currently constituted, will kill the industry and dance on our graves. I am not naive. Though I helped popularize the concept of a single-issue crypto voter in 2021, I know that for 99.9% .9 of voters, Crypto will not register on a list of top five issues that inspire them at the polls. So instead of activating a base that doesn't exist, we're left playing a game we hate, Moneyball politics, super PAC funding, and a focus on high-impact elections. I will be voting for and financially supporting whoever the GOP nominees are for the presidential and Senate races. If you'd like to focus more broadly on bipartisan pro-crypto candidates in House and Senate races, I recommend contributing as much as you can to Fair Shake Pack. We can hold the line a little longer, but we can't afford to lose next year. 5.8, stand with crypto, engagement versus kowtowing. There are a few words I despise more at this point than engagement, and it's a made-up word that reeks of mediocrity, bureaucracy, and the reductive, life-wasting, empty chatter only possible amongst those incapable of actually building things. The crypto industry's default, largely libertarian, position is that we should only regulate crypto financial services businesses that handle other people's money, private keys, and otherwise build open source tech that anyone can use without encumbrances. In that world, peer-to-peer -peer software would be protected speech and crypto ownership would be fully protected property under the U.S. Constitution. Any time spent in D.C. kowtowing to policymakers to assert rights that already exist is not only counterproductive, but degrading. Time spent lobbying for new law is time spent negotiating our own surrender. And instead, we should stand and fight on principle. I'm oversimplifying this, perhaps, but only slightly. The ethos of the community is largely in line with some combination of Eric Voorhees' 
permissionless call to action and Bill Gurley's all-in summit takedown of the regulatory state. You must take 30 minutes to watch both of these talks over the holidays, if you haven't already, as they get to the essence of many of the industry's early builders' ethos. Voorhees, one of the bona fide libertarian OGs of crypto, discussed the peaceful rebellion of building permissionless systems that replace the rule of law, ineffective and arbitrarily applied, with the rule of math, consistent and precise. Gurley, a legendary venture capitalist, discussed regulatory capture and explained how incumbent corporate interests influence policy and regulation to provably benefit themselves at the expense of citizens. He ends with a line that evoked a standing ovation. The reason Silicon Valley has been so successful is because it's so fucking far away from Washington, D.C. There's just one problem. This presents a false choice. Given the reputational setbacks we have suffered this past year, some degree of political ring kissing is necessary to survive and advance. We can't realistically walk away from all engagement in D.C. when many leaders are ready to legislate punitively on our industry. The choice to opt out entirely from these conversations with an aging, technically challenged gerontocracy at the helm of our nation's institutions would be suicidal, even if participation in the discussions themselves is stultifying. We are not only up against the big incumbent banks in our policy fights, but the incumbent regulatory state itself and regulators fucking love intermediaries. Policymakers believe that banks, exchanges, and other centralized financial services providers help the state with tax compliance, suspicious transaction monitoring, consumer protection, etc. These entities can be held accountable to achieve specific public policy goals. Of course, the degree to which they are actually helpful or to which such policy directives are cost-effective does not change the faith that policymakers have in institutions as useful appendages of the state. Permissionless systems are a threat to the entire regulatory state because they are by definition intermediary-less. Regulators lose information, they lose control, and they arguably lose their need to exist if they can't identify the responsible parties that help maintain these systems. Uh, if I've done my job in the sections above, it should be evident that U.S. regulators view crypto as a threat. The overreaching rules on broker tax reporting requirements, uh, the unconstitutional proposals floating around Congress that would extend the third-party doctrine, compel speech, and deputize software developers to enforce KYC AML regimes. The DeFi regulation report from IOSCO, an international securities meta-regulator run by the SEC, that aims to create a new legal definition, responsible party for permissionless systems from thin air. All of these proposals would effectively kill crypto in the U.S. because they would make compliance technically impossible all sorts of ecosystem participants would face some version of the SEC's come in and register duplicity. Engagement helps combat straw man attacks from bad faith enemies. Yes, tax compliance, national security, market integrity, bank stability, and consumer protection are important public policy goals. I'm not fighting you on that. However, you can't apply old rules to new technologies. True intermediaries like Coinbase and Kraken should be regulated, but will also need explicit protections for software developers, DeFi, and self-hosted wallets in any legislation that moves forward on purely constitutional grounds. There are ways to get involved directly. Call or meet with your congressional representatives. Check out Stand with Crypto. Donate to crypto-friendly incumbents. I had a good list in 2022 that I'm updating and comment on proposed rules, leverage AI to generate comment letters if you must. Or live life on easy mode and delegate and financially support the work of organizations like Coin Center, the Blockchain Association, and Fair Shake. Yeah, no, we know the system is rigged against us today, but if we don't show up, we don't even have a seat to defend ourselves. The war will be long, but it's one we can win. And even small victories will add up over time. Mark your calendars for September 30th, October 2nd. Join us at Mainnet 2024 for three days of insightful learning, in-person speakers, and exclusive networking opportunities as New York's premier crypto conference returns to Pier 36.
Register today before prices increase at mainnet.events. Three, 5.9, we need to set higher standards. So now at some point, we need to look in the mirror and accept that we are all ultimately responsible for the culture within crypto. As I wrote 18 months ago, salvation lies within. Too often, it's felt like a shitty get-rich-quick industry with a high-time preference. There are too few people willing to call out bad actors because the incentives to do so are terrible. It is reputationally, economically, and at times, legally risky. There are nearly no leaders within the industry who have been willing to work on cross-industry standard setting lest they align with the wrong partners, put themselves at a relative disadvantage to competitors, or make the sensible disclosures that could later be held against them in court. Still, I think it's important we try to advance standards and to work on self-healing in parallel to our regulatory, political, and legal fights. This is the front of the information war that we can actually win quickly if adults commit to sitting down and working through some options. Some examples, one, proof of reserves, reserve and liability attestations for crypto custodians would be easy wins for the industry. It is difficult, not impossible, to fake periodic proofs of reserves. We should know which exchanges hold which assets, and we should be able to monitor those flows on chain or through independent auditors on a regular basis. There are legislative proposals to this effect, but nothing prevents us from moving on this today and demanding this standard from all of our crypto custodians. Two, related entity disclosures. Crypto exchanges and custodians should clearly mark where there are conflicts of interest and related party transactions, and they should face higher disclosure demands with those special counterparties. It would have been impossible for FTX to borrow against its own FTT token so heavily and have its related fund, Alameda, fleece its customer piggy bank with any degree of ongoing related party disclosures. The Alameda and FTT connections and conflicts were parading around in plain sight. We should have known the details. Likewise, GBTC investors should have known that the GBTC shares, subject to strict selling restrictions, were actually uh, pledged collateral central to multiple bankruptcy disputes and were ultimately liquidated on the open market, driving the product's discount to fair market value to nearly 50%. Three, token disclosures. Token creators will need to get used to some form of disclosure standards in the years ahead. MyCA makes this inevitable in Europe. Similar regulation will extend throughout Asia and eventually hit the US through something similar to the safe harbor. Our founding mission at Masari was to create a crypto Edgar library and protocol reporting standards that would solve the industry's token transparency problem and would serve as a backbone for universally accessible project information, user analytics, tokenomics and insider transactions, governance votes and processes, technical developments and risks, security audit results, key integrations, bridges, wallets, etc., all of which can and should live in an open library. We're working on this and encourage you to check out our protocol services for details. Four, user training in lieu of accreditation. The SEC's antiquated accredited investor standards don't seem to make much sense in a world with AI and open internet and financial regulatory double standards such as ubiquitous sports betting and lottery play. That said, we haven't really done ourselves any favors in standardizing user training and good crypto security and hygiene. The bankless guys have done a good job structuring homework in their newsletters to help people manage their own crypto holdings and participation. And companies like Rabbit Hole and Quests have attempted to gamify training. But there haven't been any universal efforts on this front. We'll likely have some audiences receptive to rethinking accreditation standards. Hester Pierce asked, why do we so casually toss aside people's liberty when it comes to their financial decisions? but our odds of success drop mightily without clear safety nets. Even former SEC Chair Jay Clayton, no crypto shill, created the Investor's Bill of Rights, which advocated for investing more time and money in A, user education, B, investor qualification, C, real-time transparency, and D, disclosures for various types of investors. A four-year, $250,000 debt-financed, non-dischargeable degree should serve as accreditation. Five, front-end heuristics. 
When you authorize a third-party app to your GitHub account, it tells you how many users it has as a heuristic for trust. We should be doing the same thing with wallets and other crypto plugins, total call count for a given function, number of wallets using a given contract, etc. The age and security history of projects should be easier to discern and users could explicitly acknowledge the risks associated with decentralized protocol participation and self-custody. We could perhaps normalize personal responsibility again if we disclaimed that users be careful and responsible and assured them they would have no recourse if they weren't. I will be working on standard setting in 2024 in large part because A, I am, as they say, sick of this shit. Um, B, I want us to be amazing and as far beyond regulatory reproach as possible. And C, I know that the only time standard setting work happens is before the go-go days of a bull market pick back up. Five, when 10, MyCA and TFR, Europe's leadership. I never understood the propensity for European technocrats to boast about how innovative they are with respect to crafting tech regulations. It's always struck me as a bit of an own goal. I don't know, maybe I'm not supposed to say that. I do appreciate the effort at creating clear crypto regulation in Europe, but if the results are unworkable for many applications, what exactly is the point of clarity? The recently passed Markets and Crypto Assets Regulation, MyCA 1.0, and transfer of funds regulation, TFR, are definitely a mixed bag. That was a large portion of the debate on our MyCA panel at Mainnet a couple of months ago, uh, where some of the top crypto policy professionals weighed in on the European regulatory state of play. I'd encourage you to watch this session in full as it breaks down how this innovative regulatory package could actually prove to be a millstone around the neck of EU crypto innovators for years, maybe decades to come. Europe was the first major market to adopt comprehensive crypto regulation. It was also the first major market to cripple its crypto industry and forfeit its global competitiveness. A few high-level takeaways from MyCA and TFR. One, comprehensiveness. Pro, it's the first legislation for what EU regulators call crypto asset service providers, CASPs, and token issuers. It recognizes utility tokens as a distinct class of assets outside of the securities realm. Liability for CASPs with respect to hacks of operational vulnerabilities and certain token disclosure requirements. Con, the regulations will top out at more than 1,000 pages when all final rules and clarifications are incorporated. And that's before MyCA 2.0 and other future proposals that cover areas like DeFi and NFTs Two, travel rule implementation. Pro, no information disclosure requirements for purely peer-to-peer -peer transfers, a big win, as an earlier version of the legislation would have effectively banned self-hosted wallets, which cannot comply. CASP to CASP information sharing required as recommended under guidelines proposed by the Supranational Financial Action Task Force, FATF. Con, no transaction minimum for TFR information sharing plus CASP to self-hosted wallet information requirements. Three, stable coins. Pro clarity for issuers, which could encourage the creation of long-awaited EUR stable coins. 99% of stable coins are USD denominated. Con, EU CASPs might be prohibited from providing yield interest on top of stable coins, reduces the incentive to offer them, and may face caps on issuance. If issuers do not seek authorization, they, should, they won't be eligible for trading on EU-regulated exchanges. That would take USDC, yeah, USDT out of EU-regulated exchanges and knock professional investors out of EU-domiciled exchanges to more liquid offshore entities. Breaking when this was going to print, Societe Generale listed the first bank-regulated euro stablecoin on Bitstamp for DeFi coming soon. Pro. There is hope that an open approach to defy clear supervision, tax, DAO incorporation rules, et cetera, would allow Europe to lead on embedded supervision and experimentation with automatic compliance monitoring versus the data collection and verification default common for centralized services. A pilot program for embedded supervision was greenlit in 2022. Con DeFi developers and technical governors could eventually be on the hook for DeFi regulation, as there is no First Amendment protection in Europe, and there are certainly no illusions that 
code is protected speech. Five, miscellaneous. Pro, non-EU companies will have strict marketing restrictions for EU users, but exemptions for reverse solicitation, where EU users actively seek out foreign services, good for global incumbents like Binance who have a healthy head start, also no ban on proof of work, POW, yet, but some are leery that mandatory environmental disclosures could lead to those restrictions eventually. Con, commenting on crypto assets in social media for profit, directly or indirectly, without disclosure could be considered market manipulation. And I understand why European regulators are puffing out their chests a bit at MyCA. It is a regulatory milestone under which they believe engaging in frauds like FTX would have been impossible or at least significantly harder. But I'm more circumspect, and I fear we are entering a time when global compliance among various conflicting regimes will prove impossible. The future belongs to the countries which commit to technological superiority and innovation, not who creates the crypto version of GDPR's website banners. Now, was conclusion, Regulators worldwide are probably not going to kill crypto or AI or social media or biotech or, but they can make our lives miserable for a considerable period of time. We just need to hold the line for a bit longer and defend the free and open internet of finance. Remember, politics is downstream of culture. Politicians pick personnel. Personnel is policy. Policy is quasi-permanent. Win the cultural information war and we win the ball game.